Welcome to the Thinking Fellows Podcast. My name is Caleb, and I'm with Drs. Rod Rosenblatt, Scott Keith, and Adam Francisco today. We are having a somewhat normal episode. We, we don't have a guest on the show today, which is uh, rare lately, right? I think almost every episode of the summer had a guest on it, except maybe one or two. Um, there were some episodes where Dr. Keith recorded alone with Dr. Francisco and Rod Rosenblatt, um, but... Those episodes were almost like guest episodes. You were kind of treating them mm-hmm. like uh, like guests on a special topic that they did where they kind of ran the show, kind of like when we give guests the mic, which was pretty cool. But we're getting back into the normal flow here as summer ends and schedules kind of settle. So we're able to all record again together, which is fantastic. So if there's been people kind of missing the, the regular formula of the show, we're back. Today we're going to go back into the Reformation topics that we had been doing, or we still have been doing, even on the travel and guest episodes. And what we're doing today is we're going to talk about the Heidelberg Disputations. Uh, It's a historical point in Lutheranism, a lot of important uh, doctrinal points here. There's even, I I think a lot of the, perhaps one of the most famous Luther quotes comes out of bookends out of here too. So we'll talk about all of that in this episode. Uh, Don't forget that if you want to get the show every week, that you can subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Um, I've I've scoured about 15 podcasting apps, and we're on all of them uh, available. We're on the Google Play Store, iTunes. We're in the Microsoft Store. There are 15 podcasting apps? There's way more than that. There's probably hundreds because of individual app developers. But either way, you can get it on any of those that you want. So if you haven't subscribed to the show, uh, it would be awesome if you went and did that. You'll get the episode every week and your phone or your computer will alert you that you have a new episode waiting for you. All right, without further ado, I think uh, we can begin the show. I think we'll start today. Uh, we have our historian back. We haven't had uh, Dr. Francisco uh, on a ton of episodes this summer, mostly because of the nature of the travel. But can you give us a historical introduction to the Heidelberg Disputations? Maybe why, why does this event occur? Why do these have to be written? What's going on? Well, first, a word on its importance. Um, we usually mark Reformation, the beginning of the Reformation, October 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. And as important as that event was, the theology of the 95 Theses isn't really, revolutionary, if you will, Protestant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, no. It's just yeah. simply a protest against the abuse of the sale of indulgences. Where you first see Luther, if you will, being a Lutheran or an evangelical, is probably a little better, mm-hmm. uh, is at the Heidelberg Disputation. It takes place about six months after he, the 95 Theses were posted in, in late April of 1518. It was a designed by or orchestrated, engineered by Luther's father confessor, Johann Staupitz, at the Augustinian cloister there in Erfurt. And it, what, what he wanted to do was give Luther and Luther's ideas and the ideas that are starting to, to emerge in, at the University of Wittenberg a chance to um, publicly dispute them over and against the, the theology and the philosophy, the epistemology that they were, they were coming to reject. So the Heidelberg disputation is both, there's theological theses involved and also philosophical theses. But in, in the dis- dispute, you start to see Luther asserting what we would call a theology of the cross. You see Luther reject the old sort of scholastic theology that you can trace back even beyond Thomas Aquinas, but it's especially symbolized by Thomas Aquinas. 
uh, the theme of law and gospel emerges, the issue of free will, free will versus a bound will emerges. Sin um, race. So, yeah, all the major themes of the Reformation, yep. with the exception of sola scriptura, that's sort of assumed. Right. Yep. Yep. But uh, it, it will become an issue in the months, um, years uh, following as Luther is put on trial by the papacy, uh, culminating at the Diet of Worms. Right. But I think, uh, again, Heidelberg is sort of where we actually see a real reformational theology uh, emerge in mm -hmm. a very public way, or at least a, a way that's public for the, the early modern period. And, and fairly so, early in the game. Yeah. I mean, a lot is going to happen following this, mm -hmm. but it's amazing that embryonically it was already cooking inside him. I could never tell that from the 95 Theses. No, not really. No. Yeah, you, what you have is sort of a posted, I have questions and concerns about some of our practices, right? Uh -huh. And the. And uh -huh. You can get it a little bit on the objections to indulgences based on the fact that, of course, one cannot be saved through these things, you yeah, know, yeah. but nothing as explicit as what you get in the Heidelberg Disputations. Yeah. You know, another point, too, just historically speaking, it's at Heidelberg where other members of the Augustinian order mm -hmm. hear Luther and his theology for the first time, and it begins to, you, you start to see the Reformation emerging outside of Wittenberg, mm -hmm. down in southern Germany. Martin, Martin Bucer is the big name there. there. Yeah. Yeah. So you could say it's the catalyst for the Reformation outside of northern Germany. Mm -hmm. um, what else? There's some other major themes. Or, uh, well, I was going to ask, Adam, well, is, is, is there a big distinction? I mean, this is obviously, there's sometimes historians, especially historians, I think, maybe theologians to some degree, We'll make a distinction between early Luther, late Luther. Yep. Um, this is obviously, even by anybody's count, this has got to be early Luther, yeah. right? 15, 18 is mm -hmm. only yeah, yeah. It's less than a year after the 95 Theses. Is it, I mean, what do you think about that distinction in general? I mean, you've, your entire uh, doctoral work was on Luther and sort of you know, looking throughout the years as he spoke to a particular issue, obviously. But still, what, what do you think about that distinction? And Because there's some hard-hitting stuff in this. I mean, even um, the first one, the law of God, the most, salu the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, mm -hmm. but rather hinders him. There'd be some theologians, especially, who would argue that Luther softened on that in mm -hmm. his later life, mm -hmm. um, and that there's a, a early Luther, late Luther yeah, distinction yeah. there. Well, first, uh, going back to Dr. Rosenblatt's comment about um, how this is early on in Luther's career, um, there is a long, I mean, you could find it probably in almost any Luther biography. There are debates over when Luther got actually it. became the evangelical. When and, he got it. Yeah, and I think you, you could argue it's at least 1518. Some people will put it back earlier, but I think when you actually have evidence for it, that Luther's mm -hmm. actually made, turned a corner, and he's heading straight towards what he is, the theology that he will yeah. develop later on. It's at Heidelberg. Yeah. Now, is there a distinction between... A early Luther and a later Luther, where Luther changes his mind on things. I don't know that. Certainly, Luther um, develops. Everybody yes. develops. Yes. Um, I do think that the differences you see in later Luther are him uh, becoming more practical. You know, right. More you know, pastoral, maybe. Well, more pastoral, but also like, for example, with the two kingdom doctrine. Early on, he asserts, you know. There's two realms um, in his, I think it's 1520, 1521. 
letter or to the German nobility, he asserts that true Christians need no government, right? Mm -hmm. And then shortly thereafter, you have the big Munster debacle yep. and all these Anabaptist excesses. And so you'll, you'll find Luther later on adding to his two-kingdom doctrine mm -hmm. or refining it. So mm -hmm. the, the differences are him refining his doctrine. And you know, early on, he's, he's acting, he's working as kind of an abstract scholastic theologian, if you will, of a particular mm -hmm. stride of the Via Moderna. Mm -hmm. And um, when all of a sudden his teachings actually have real-world implications, then he finds that he's got to kind of add a bit of nuance to it, add, mm -hmm. uh, refine the doctrine a bit more. So later on with the, with the teaching on righteousness, for example, uh, he, through antinomian disputes, mm -hmm. uh, public and private, he has to address the issue of the law later on because there were real bona fide antinomians right. running around. That's so right. it's not that he's changing his mind, he's just adding to it. Responding. To, it's more, yeah. I don't like the term, because liberals use it, but nuance to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, another it, thing I think is worth noticing here, this early, <clears throat> in the Heidelberg Disputation, he's undercutting the whole business of merit. Yeah. The whole right. thing. It wasn't just abuses of indulgence. Now, others had done that, mm -hmm. but he was going to the the whole branch to cut it off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that included um, Aquinas. It included others uh, of repute, and he was going to say the whole branch is not good. Yeah, I have a. I was telling you guys before we began recording that I had just um, helped a. MA student at the university finished up his thesis that he did on Heidelberg disputations. Um, and he, some of the closing lines to his thesis are great because they say just what you said. Um, he, he points out, you know, a couple of things that surprised him along the way or that came out of the, his scholarship that were surprising. Um, and he, he uses this line. This is his third, the third surprise. He says um, that the theology of the Heidelberg disputations lays flat all the earth for places rich and poor, godly and godless, strong and weak on the same level. Um, no one has anything to give God. We only have our crucified Savior who became nothing that we might meet, that he might meet us in our sin and weakness. I thought, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely, when you read the disputations, that's one of the things that happens is everything is laid bare here. And mm -hmm. it's why it's such a powerful little mm -hmm. set of uh, propositions is because... And that's all it is. If our reader, our listeners aren't familiar with it, it's um, simply just 28 sentences, really, yeah. that lay out various propositions uh, open for debate. And they, they're they just written in that style. It's so hard-hitting. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what thesis it is. You've got them in front of you, so maybe you could find it. But uh, where he makes a distinction about or between theology done in an a priori way versus an a posteriori way, I mean, I, he really does change the the method of doing theology and the mm -hmm. focus of theology from the a priori assumptions and speculation, uh, yeah, speculation, yeah, speculation. of uh, of the scholastics, where the marker of truth in theology is its coherence. Yep. To a theology that's done a posteriori after the things revealed, revealed. by God, right? Uh, that starts from the the groundwork of the cross. And that's revolution. That's oh, theologically changes, revolutionary. Changes everything. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's the reality. Is that there? What comes out of this? What when what eventually develops in Lutheranism is that there's 
um, I think we're talking about it in the next episode, right? Faith and reason is a, an acknowledgement that everybody uses reason when sure. doing theology. But the question is, how so? Yep. You know, and um, what role does it play? Is it uh, one where reason is being sort of imposed and uh, preconceived? Even in a lot of Luther's writings, even when you get the idea that philosophy is, you know, the devil's horror or something like that, really the idea is philosophies, right? Or a particular ideal uh, set of ideals or a system of philosophy being imposed on the scriptures. Yep is not workable. This yep. is not this is the revelation from God and if we approach it we have to approach it from the ground up inductively yep. and see what it's see what it actually says before we make conclusions about what it says. Yep. Mm. Yep, that was not exactly what characterized scholasticism. No. <laughs> <laughs> they may not be exactly what characterizes our modern approach to to theology. Mm. Yeah. So what are the, some of the, Adam doesn't have them in front of him, but I can share mine. What, do you, what are some most hard-hitting ones for you? I mean, obviously the one that everyone um, in my circles has memorized is uh, 26. The law says do this and it's never done. Yes. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. Yeah. Um, I just think it's, it's a phenomenal little work and just some of the, the gems in here. Um, we talked about the, you, Rod, you talked about right at the beginning that this reveals immediately that there's that merit that your merit cannot be applied to your salvation yeah you know so merits out thesis two much less can human works which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts so to speak lead to that end in other words to the end of your salvation um although the works of man always seem attractive and good they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean this is pretty radical stuff but he's He's building from texts in the Bible with which he's now become extremely familiar and had to wrestle with them, you know, to the ground. Um, So it isn't as if it's just clever. It's forcing things to the Bible text. Right. I mean, and it's certainly revolutionary in his day. And the funny thing is, is how revolutionary these statements still are. Sure. Um, within the greater uh, scope of Christianity, within general evangelicalism, sometimes even within Lutheranism, yeah. when you say these things, that you know, it it, it grounds people, lays yeah. the world bare, as as Chuck said. Um, one of the things I think of, and, and this happens a lot to others, I'm just one of them, <clears throat> but to have a debate with a priest and an open audience, and I expect when it's over with. Some well-educated dentist or doctor and his wife are going to be walking back to the car. And he's going to say to his wife, you know, the priest made sense to me. But for the life of me, I don't know what Rosenblatt's point point was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, why did, but they flush that out a little bit. The priest made sense to him because. Because of the, the inward in us, legal opinion, Pieper calls it. That if there's anything that's true religiously, good people are going to go to heaven and bad people are going to go to hell. That's right. And here I am talking about the righteousness of somebody else being reckoned to you, and it's enough to get you into heaven. And it's the only thing that will get you into heaven is imputed righteousness, and it's somebody else's. Yep. And the dentist says afterwards, I don't know what his point was. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. 
if it doesn't make sense, you're probably, you know, if it doesn't automatically make sense to to the old Adam, as we would say, you're That's probably it. on the right track. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, you can see in the middle here in thesis uh, 13 and 14, you can see sort of the, the already stirrings of what will come to be known as the bondage of the will um, in Luther. Free will, after all, or after the fall, exists in name only. Yeah. And as long as it does what it is able to do, it commits mortal sin. Yeah. Right? In other words, yeah, you have the ability to choose, but it's to choose which you know wrong thing. Yeah. Or yeah. Which choose sin, your poison. Choose your poison, which sin you're going to commit today. Um, free will after the fall has the power to do good only in passive capacity, um, but it can always do evil in active capacity. Yep. I mean, that's just um, mind-blowing. Nor could free will remain in the state of innocence, much less do good in an active capacity, but only uh, in its passive capacity. I mean, it's just yeah. mind-blowing stuff. It's great because it's, uh, I don't know, you're always looking for, like, good Reformation quotes or good Luther quotes, right? And you always find paragraphs. And here, you get, you're right, you just get these little sentences. Perfect little sentences yeah. to uh, drop, which is nice. It kind of so reminds you of uh, Montgomery's Tractatus. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Or other way around, Tractatus kind of reminds you of this. So, Adam, what I mean, breaking in in, in history here, what's the, what's the next step after this? Because this is, you know, the... The uh, 95 Theses maybe got him a little bit of attention and got him in a little bit of trouble, but this has to be more groundbreaking than that. This has to, this has to shake the earth under his feet more yeah, than... How fortunate that it was uh, done with his Augustinian brothers as the audience. Yeah. Next, it's going to be Eck, Cajetan and Eck and, and so forth. But I'm glad that uh, Staupitz said, Luther, I want you to lay it out to all the brethren first. Mm -hmm. Good yeah, move. Staupitz was, in many ways, he wasn't Luther's protector like Frederick the Wise, mm -hmm. but he was, he recognized, and I think there's pretty good evidence that Staupitz, though he just sort of died in obscurity, um, was a he real was, believer. Yeah. Not, and, he wasn't Lutheran, but... Yeah, uh, he was a, and he was a genuine friend to Luther, mm -hmm. though he didn't understand why he was so bothered inside. Mm -hmm. But there, there's a lot of help. Luther considered him a lot of help in some mm -hmm. dark times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that there's a... I mean, not that I, everything has to be about fatherhood for me here, but um, at the same time, Luther, coming into the monastery, had a, a rather turbulent relationship with his own father oh. um, and at the seminary whether whether Staupitz came to full-on Lutheranism or not it can easily be said that I think Luther found in him a mentor yes. that um, sort of took that role that his father didn't really play for him you know somebody yeah. that he he felt he could trust and supported him and would guide him in the right yeah. direction I remember and Staupitz did that it seems like yeah I remember uh, asking other scholars, what was it that both Luther and Calvin said some such <coughs> nice things about Bernard of Clairvaux? Mm -hmm. Well, what I had missed was Staupitz at one point when Luther was confessing and confessing and, and wasn't working, Staupitz told him to read about the wounds of Christ. That's why Luther found it, and so so Calvin in Bernard of Clairvaux, mm -hmm. the concentration on the sufferings of Christ, and that was of genuine help to Luther. Mm -hmm. well, that's great. Okay, we're gonna 
go to our break. When we come back, we'll finish up with the Heidelberg Disputations and maybe talk a little bit about what happened after here and sort of uh, what this led to and how we how we got to where we are now through this. All right. Sounds good. Welcome to our break. Today we're going to talk about for your last chance opportunity to go to the Here We Still Stand conference. This show is, depending on the timing, either coming out one or two weeks before the conference, so you really don't have a lot of time left, but registration will still be open for those last couple of spots that we have available. So if you're a local Southern California resident, uh, this is probably easier for you because there's no plane tickets or anything to book, but you'll, you'll go to herewestillstand.org. And there, there's a register button. You can hit that. Uh, we have the promo code fellows. Sellout, oh, too. Oh, sellout's still going on, too, yeah. which gets you uh, a really big discount. It's down to $99, correct? Mm-hmm. So you can come to the Here We Still Stand conference for, oh, that's half, half off, 50% sure off um, in these last couple of weeks. So you're going to want to use, yeah, the code sellout. And uh, what are all, Dr. Keith, can you remind everybody what they're getting? I mean, We've highlighted it a bunch, but, you know, a lot of people kind of sit on these things and they hear it every week and then they go back to work or whatever and forget about it. Um, now's your chance to not miss out. Uh, so what, what yes. would you be missing out on? Um, so first of all, the conference runs uh, October 19 to 21 it's in San Diego, California at the Hyatt Regency Mission Bay and Spa. Um on Thursday, October 19, the day starts out with uh, podcast recordings of all your favorite podcasts. Ringside with the Jagged Word, 11.30, 40 minutes in the Old Testament at 12.30. Front Porch with the Fitzes at 1.30, Virtue in the Wasteland at 2.30, and Thinking Fellows at 3.30. Um, later on that evening, there's the general conference stuff, including Steve Brown speaking that night. There's a breakout that night. And then Friday's the big day. Friday's the day when all the main events are. Chad Bird speaking, Jared Wilson, Elise Fitzpatrick. We're doing a lunch panel with Rod Rosenblatt, Steve Paulson. I'm speaking that night, and then it ends with Dr. Montgomery doing a Why the Reformation Still Matters during the dinner. Uh, Saturday, ending up with uh, people like Dave Zoll and Matt Popovitz. Incredible event. Uh, There's meals included. Your ticket price includes the main session, breakouts, Um, of your choices, uh, plus a dessert buffet on Thursday night, breakfast, lunch, and dinner on Friday, and a breakfast on Saturday. And plus it's in the beautiful Hyatt Regency Mission Bay and Spa in San Diego, California, an incredible resort. Um, You can still book your room through the link on the Here We Still Stand site. You can still register on the Here We Still Stand site. And I encourage people, if you're anywhere in the area, if you can at all make it, even for one of the days, you should really try to. It's herewestillstand.org, uh, October 19 to 21 in San Diego, California. Yeah, I mean, if you can only make it, you know, Saturday because you work Friday and you have family commitments on Sunday and things like that, uh, the $99 is really, I mean, you're still getting a oh, lot yeah, for it. Most conferences, I, I just wanted people to give get a reference. Most of the conferences that we look at going to for the podcast and things like that, um, uh, are up to five hundred, six hundred dollar attendance prices, and then last minute tickets usually don't go down to a hundred. They usually go up to twelve hundred plus for a, a three day weekend conference. So something like this is uh, really, really a bargain. 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, we're at the point now where um, with bringing in that last sellout sale that if you're around, you should really make it. We'd love to meet you. I know Adam would love to meet you, right, Adam? I love people. That's right. So come on down and make Adam smile. (laughs) (laughs) Crookedly. Crookedly. My crooked (laughs) smile. (laughs) All right. Okay, so we're talking about the Heidelberg Disputation still. We talked a lot about uh, the forefront of it, kind of the hard-hitting impact of these 23, correct, sentences? No, 28. 28, 28 sentences. And uh, so you wanted to talk about kind of the response, right, to this and where where it puts Luther? Well, yeah, I mean, in the context of things here, again, this is really early. This is prior to 1521. 1521 is when Luther goes to the Diet at Worms, and that's where after that point in time he's, it's fair to call him an outlaw after 1521, right? Yeah, he's condemned. Yeah, he's he's under the imperial edict. Um, he can be... Heretic and an outlaw. He was a heretic and an outlaw. He can be arrested. He can be... Shot on sight. Shot on sight. Um, and so prior to 15 or after 1521, his, his movements in a lot of ways are limited to those areas where he could be under the protection of his elector, um, or when he's given safe passage for something or something like that. Um, but this is, I mean, this, in my opinion, the Heidelberg disputations kind of start the cascade much more so than again, the 95 theses, which we tend to celebrate because what he's putting forth here is a as a positive theology that flies in the face of the Roman system of merit and um, semi Pelagian helping God out to to earn your salvation and there's just thesis after thesis after thesis attacks that concept and he just doesn't he doesn't stop for there I mean Adam was talking at the break over the um, disputation against scholastic theology you know which goes against really the system under which Rome is operating at the time. Um, within three years of this, you're going to have uh, Luther publish his uh, famous three treatises, uh, the, the Address to the Christian Nobility, the Babylonian Captivity of Church, and on the Freedom of the Christian Man. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that this is significantly different uh, from 1517, 95 Theses, what transitions Luther here in these couple short years? What what is the change from you know upset about uh, you know impious practices within the church to uh, radical reformer? At, at one point, he somewhere between fifteen seventeen and fifteen twenty one, he makes the point that he had no idea that Rome was teaching what he learned at Rome was teaching, in particular in connection to Rome, to authority. Like he had no clue. When he asserted, started to assert that the Bible is the only real authority that can bind consciences, um, and Rome pushes back. 1518, there's a, a dialogue that a Roman theologian published that asserts that it's not just the Bible, but it's the Pope speaking from his mm-hmm. office mm-hmm. who does, cannot err. Luther receives that and, and expresses amazement that that's actually what's being taught. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of it's the pushback from the, the, the Pope, and the pushback, Luther, be, up until 1521, it forces Luther to go back and do more research. Yeah, and he has he to dis- read more history. Yeah, he discovers... The, the Pseudo-Isidorian decretals, is mm-hmm. that when he ran into them? Those, the, the discovery of the forgery of the... Of, 
of uh, the donation of Constantine, right. all yeah. these sorts of things, he realizes that everything that, that is propping up, holding up the church, is not really well grounded. Mm -hmm. That popes have erred, popes have contradicted each other. Sinking the, sand instead of the confession the, you know, of their, Christ. Their claim that Constantine bequeathed to the church all this property is based on a forged document and so on and so forth. So it's, yeah, it's the historical research. And Luther, just to put in a plug for history, uh, will add a little later on in his career that the most useful of all people are historians because they're the ones who tell the truth. Mm-hmm. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I think that um, I, I agree that the 95 Theses, you know, they're, they're not revolutionary, and uh, at least not to the degree that we tend to celebrate them as the, the starting point of the Reformation. But at the same time, we have to understand what he's objecting to there, too. Mm -hmm. So we say, oh, he's just objecting to the selling of indulgences. Well, he's, he's objecting to the idea that a person can buy their salvation. Really, Certainly that. Really through, you know, a donation to the coffers of the Roman church yeah. by means of indulgences or through anything that you do, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, money is not a substitute for merit because merit right. isn't a means of salvation. That's right. And yeah. so it, it is a starting point there. It's funny, if, if you read um, on the freedom of the Christian man, uh, the whole first part of that, uh, to c go along with what Adam is saying, is sort of an expression to the Pope at the time that, and I, don't, I can't tell if he's being sarcastic or not, that, um, <laughs> you know, certainly you're not to blame. He says things like that, but the abuses mm -hmm. that surround you are so overwhelming that um, your, your cardinals and, and whatnot, they... They're doing these things unbeknownst to you, and you know I'm sure I'm not sure if there's a wink wink that comes along with that, but he really you really do get in to a degree a sense of surprise um uh, from Luther and this is fifteen twenty one right this is you get a sense of surprise from him that that not only are these things going on but that surely dear Pope, if you would know if you had known mm. they were going on. I'm sure you would have done, done something about it. So let me take this opportunity to tell you what's happening out here mm -hmm. as we're sort of mucking it up with the layman and the other priests. Um, and that's why I used the word cascade, Caleb. I think that there's a, each one of these events stacks on the other one. Um, no, neither one of them is a standalone event and they're happening, you know, sequentially in a sense. And, the more time passes, they happen faster too, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And that's why by 1521, when he's called to the Diet of Worms, uh, you know, if you want to see a pictorial representation of it, just get the old Luther movie, and they have the stack of his writings on the table, mm -hmm. and he's asked to recant, and he's kind of like, recant of what? You know, and, well, recant of all of it. And he will literally say, he actually referred sort of the, to the cascade of events, and he says things like, well, I don't know if you're recanting, asking me to recant of what I wrote in this one or if what I wrote on this one. Certainly they don't all say the same thing or deal with the same subject, but they're all what the Roman church, I think the one thing they do see kind of clearly is that even though they don't all talk about the same thing, the end is the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the end is the same that in an interesting way, the power of the church is being removed and it's being replaced with the, the grace of God on account of Christ. And um, whether that's a development, whether it's sort of a groundswell, whether it's a cascade of events, whatever, the end result is, is that surely by, you know, 1521, he's on a 
pretty solid track towards the same end. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's these themes in here that we then continue to see through um, some of the more unified works, like uh, in 1530, the Oxford Confession and the Apology and things like that, Well, too, if you right? think of it this way, you know, again, the, the year that Diet of Worms occurs is the first year that Melanchthon puts out the, the first edition of the Loci Communis, which literally takes these maybe disparate thoughts all pointed in the same direction and systematizes them into one thought, you mm -hmm. know, where it's based on the Book of Romans, working out the the history of the salvation of sinners um, systematically and topically. And Luther sees this in 1521, and he sees, you know, he basically beyond kind of canonical, um, sees it as an accurate representation of what they've been working for these past three years. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not as systematically, but definitely what they've been working for. Well, you for. called it a book let down from heaven itself. Right. <clears throat> Another thing that I think all of our listeners already know, but it's still worth mentioning. In one of his prefaces to Pope Leo, he says to him that there have been other reformers, but primarily they were moral. Right. And he said, I'm going to go down to the taproot of it all. The problem's in the doctrine. Right. Well, that's what he gives uh, Erasmus credit for in the freedom yep. of the will, too. So whatever Luther is, he's not a moral reformer. No. Not he didn't see himself that way. He he knew there had been many of them, too many, too mm -hmm. many drunken monks or nuns or pregnancy, and he wasn't primarily interested in any of that. So if we put him into that kind of a procrustean bed, we've made a mistake. He's interested in what is biblical and true and what's counterfeit and false primarily. And it all has to do, focus is, on the death of Christ saving. You know? Mm -hmm. um, but not cleaning up the morals of the religious caste of the day. Yeah, I mean, there were many, many, you might call them uh, Christian humanists at the time who were attempting to make changes to the church you might call them reforms that were moral in nature. Yeah. You know, Erasmus is one of them. Right. Um, and I think it takes a while for them, the Lutheran Reformation, Lutheran reformers to work out that this is not what they are. But once they do, I mean, that's, this is definitive. This is not what we are. We're going at the, yep. the root of the thing. We're going at the theology. Do you have something? You look like you were going to say something. Oh, I'm just deep in thought over here. Yeah. Uh, in in the going back to the Heidelberg disputation, there's that line where he rejects. It's it's about theological method, and he's we were talking about this over break, I believe. Yeah. Uh, that if you're going to philosophize with Aristotle, if you're if you're really going to engage in that sort of speculation, first you got to get grounded and be a fool, fool for Christ. So he's going to what's significance in Heidelberg disputation and historically what Luther's doing is. Priorities, starting points are completely overturned. That's mm -hmm. absolutely right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, philosophy, while it might be a handmaiden to theology and, and so on and so forth, for Luther, you start with theology first, mm -hmm. and then your, everything should be taken captive to Christ, and your philosophy works out from that. Yep. So, it's you know, methodologically things are overturned. Um, I think uh, epistemologically, obviously, things are overturned. Right. Um, 
even more. And then the focus, when towards the end of Luther's life, I think it was about a year before he died, uh, he gives us kind of a recounting of, of his life. And he talks about how even before all this stuff began with, with his confrontation with the papacy, he was wrestling with the issue of the righteousness of God. Yep. And he talks about, you know, some people call it his tower experience. Nobody can locate when that actually took place. It's really hard, but it seems that even before all this formal theologizing and so on, there's something, if you will, existential going on with Luther's struggle with unfectung, the real mm-hmm. terrors of conscience. And so in addition to the formal kind of proceedings that are going on, there might be something with, I mean, not might, there is something with Luther just trying to find a, a righteous, or Gracious find out what the, what the righteousness of God is, yes. and how is how can God, who is perfectly righteous, also be gracious? Yep. Well, he's, I mean, to, and, to steal a phrase from Rod, he's being broken by his own church at this yeah. time, and it's leaving him with no hope. Mm-hmm. He's finding that he leaves with a, he leaves confession with a list, and he performs every list, and he still realizes it's not enough, you yep. know, and he's becoming more and more broken. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to wrap up, but I just wanted to, I was just looking this over. I wanted to, um, we talked about theology of the cross and theology of glory. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. We just recorded an episode on that with, uh, Jim Nestigan and, uh, John Pless in Norway. That was yeah. the big question. Yes. Yeah, so if you, if you haven't listened to that one, this yeah. is actually a good place to go back and, and they go should go back episode. and check that out. I thought those two guys off the top of their head did that in a way I couldn't. Um, but if we start, in the Heidelberg Disputations at Disputation 21, it says, A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it, what it actually is. The wisdom which sees the invisible things of God and works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. The law brings the wrath of God, Romans 4.15, kills, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. Yet that wisdom is not of itself evil, nor is the law to be evaded. But without the theology of the cross, man misuses the best in the worst manner. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good place to end. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode. Um, I'm kind of I'm I'm reaching out to listeners right now. A lot of you have. Um, messaged me in the past about how the show has impacted you. Um, if this show has been meaningful to you in any way, we'd love to hear from you. There is a contact us form on the Thinking Fellows website. So that's thinkingfellows.com. I'll also post a direct link to the form in the show notes if you're on your smartphone. And there you can send me an email. Um, and if, you, yeah, if you'd yeah, if you like to tell us uh, why you started listening to the show, why you keep listening to the show, that kind of thing. So those are really helpful for us um, to get feedback and to share with potential donors for the show that help us keep running. So thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.